Luke 3, 15 to 22. We made our way from verse 1 of chapter 3 down through verse 20 last week. We considered together the message of John the Baptist as he called the crowds who came to him there at the Jordan River to repent and to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. He also, integral to his message, was the word that pointed to Jesus. When the people asked, is he the Christ? Are you the one that we have been waiting for? His answer was, I am not the Christ. And he pointed to him. Now, as we considered down through verse 20, we didn't talk much about what he said concerning Jesus. So we're going to go back into last week's passage, starting with verse 15, and we'll end on verse 22 today. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning, questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this word, this message today would serve to exalt the name of Christ in every heart. I pray that your word would serve to exalt Christ in my heart. His glory, his honor would be my sole aim. And I pray, Father, for everyone who's hearing your word today, that their attention would be riveted on your word. I pray we, we know we're easily distracted. I pray that the distractions would be minimal today. Let's... I'll just go ahead and ask, Father, that they would be zero today. And I pray, Father, that the Lord Jesus Christ would captivate our hearts. We would be drawn to him and we would realize that Jesus is everything, our all in all, and in him is everything that we need. I thank you, Father, for your Son. I thank you for the Holy Spirit whom you give pray that you would give him to us so that we may be drawn to Christ. I ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Was this the Christ? Was this man who had just emerged out of the wilderness and was 
preaching and baptizing along the Jordan the Christ. That was the question that was in everybody's minds and on everybody's lips. And John's answer was immediate. He was not the anointed one. He's not the long-awaited promised one of God. So his answer is immediate and consistent. He said, I am not the Christ. Let's read these verses again, which we read a moment ago. He said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. In that particular day, student disciples served every, just about every single need that their rabbi teacher had as they learned from these rabbis and as they followed them. An itinerant traveling ministry like Jesus had was not necessarily rare in Palestine. Uh, It was not necessarily a new thing. So disciples were expected to wait on their rabbis, except for at least one thing that was very clearly mentioned, actually. One rabbi said that his disciples were to wait on him. This is written, except that those students were not so low on the totem pole that they would unstrap his sandals. That was a task that would be reserved for the the lowest of slaves. And so the students would wait on the needs of the teacher for everything that a servant would wait on his master for, except that the student would not unstrap his sandals. That would be considered too demeaning, too low. So John said, Am I the Christ? Are you kidding? I baptize with water. What is my worth? I am not even so worthy as to unstrap the coming one's sandals. Jesus would later say, after John had been executed, in Luke 7, he said, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. But great as John may have been, John knew that he was so beneath Jesus in worth that the only reason he wouldn't lose his sandal strap was because he wasn't great enough. The greatest among those born of women, but not so great that he would be worthy to unloose the strap sandal, the sandal strap of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wasn't worthy. Is anybody here the Christ? I didn't think so. Me neither. If you are not the anointed one of God, If you are not the Lord Jesus Christ, this is why you are here. This is your purpose, to come to him. You are here and you are now to come to the Lord Jesus Christ and to call others to join you in coming to him. Come to him and call others to come to him. All to the glory of God. That's why you are here. One thing that was referenced in our Sunday school this morning, just about all of you would have heard this, that we are here to learn Jesus and to help others to learn Jesus. Same thing, just in different words. 
Learn him and help others to learn him. Come to him and call others to him. Know him and make him known. All to the glory of God. That's why you're here. So if you are not Jesus, if you are not the Christ that the world was waiting for, then you're here to come to him for salvation and to call others to him as well. And it doesn't matter where you are in life. You could be at the very beginning of your life, so to speak, you know, in your uh, preteen years or early teens, 20-something, middle-aged, retired. You could be on the top rung or bottom rank as far as this world standards go. You are here to come to Jesus and to call others to him as well. That's why we're here. But, that being said, you will never fulfill God's purpose for you if you do not first have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ flooding your heart and your soul and your mind. I'll say it again. You will not fulfill this purpose of coming to Jesus and calling others to him until you first have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ coming down and flooding your heart and your soul and your mind. You must see Christ for yourself. You must know him for yourself. And you must be absolutely certain of the worth of Jesus Christ. You must have this, the certainty, if you're going to come to him. And call others to him as well. So let's talk more about Jesus. And let's be certain together of the worth of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that we can, again, fulfill our purpose of coming to him and calling others to join us in coming to Jesus. So what will Jesus do? John says he will baptize this one who is mightier than I who is coming, will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I just baptized with water, John said. And many fulfilled that role of baptizing with water. But Jesus alone will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. By baptizing us with the Holy Spirit, he joins us to himself in the church. I want to read a portion of 1 Corinthians 12 just to explain this spirit baptism for a moment. We talked about this in our Sunday school class, but I didn't mention this passage. 1 Corinthians 12, it says, just as the body is one and has many members. Okay, so how many bodies do you have? You have one body, right? I mean, maybe we'd all like to be in more than one place at once, but we can't. We have one body, but we have many members to our bodies. 206 bones, I think, if I remember correctly, you know, Uh, Ten finger digits, ten toes, and all the rest. One body, but many members to that body. And so he says, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. It's a simple idea. Then he says, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And then he says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. At the moment 
that you turned to God in repentance and turned to Jesus in faith, you were baptized by the Holy Spirit. And so you were joined to Christ in His church. Apart from the giving of the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Jesus. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. That's Romans 8. Now, it's possible that someone might think that is so deeply theological or whatever that it is of no particular importance or interest or relevance to me here and now. But it is very relevant, it is very important, and it should be of immense interest to every single person here. Because if you don't have the Holy Spirit, if you don't have this baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus performs, you are lost. You will perish forever. Now the question that we need to ask is, who truly has the Holy Spirit? Well, of all the people who are in this room, before me, I can't have absolute certainty who has the Holy Spirit and who does not. Not with divine clarity. I I cannot say who has the Spirit for certain and who does not. You see, in John's day, in his ministry, as much prophetic insight as he was given from God, he couldn't tell for certain who was who and what was what. And so who, who was truly repentant is perhaps a better way that I should put it. Who was truly repentant and who was not. And so what did he do? He just... He took a shotgun approach to everybody that came to him for baptism, right? He took a shotgun approach and he just said to everybody, "Uh, since I don't know who is a son of a snake and who is not, he said, you brood of vipers. Everybody, you brood of vipers. Let the conviction fall where it will. You brood of vipers. Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Because John couldn't tell who was truly repentant and who was not. But Jesus can know, and Jesus does know. He knows who truly has the Spirit and who does not, who belongs to Him and who does not. Jesus knows with that absolute certainty and that divine clarity, if you are are His, or if you are a fraud just pretending religion, or if you are yet a prodigal still off in the far country away from your true home. He knows He knows who is in and he knows who is out. He knows better and clearer, infinitely better and clearer than any of us know about ourselves. Jesus knows. Now, back into this text. Who he does not baptize with the Spirit for salvation in this life, he will baptize with fire in the judgment to come. Who he does not baptize with the Spirit for salvation in this life, he will baptize with fire in the judgment that is to come. All those who refuse him. You and I don't know our own hearts in full. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, Jeremiah 17. But Jesus knows your heart. There are corners, recesses to your heart that you can't see. There are layers to your heart that you can't get at. 
but it's all open to Christ. Using the language of Hebrews 4, I believe it is, you are naked and open before him. And one day, naked, exposed, and open before him, spiritually speaking, of course, you will give an account for your life. One day we're all going to stand before him. And John says that courtroom is going to be like a threshing floor. And the judge is going to be like the thresher of wheat. And all of those who truly belong to Jesus will be as the wheat. And those who do not belong to Jesus will be like the chaff. And Jesus is going to separate the wheat from the chaff. He's going to separate the one from another with his winnowing fork. And he's going to gather the wheat, which is a representation of those who truly belong to him. He's going to gather them into his barn. But the chaff, those who do not truly belong to Jesus, will be burned with that unquenchable fire. And so this is a picture of the final ingathering of the people of God and the judgment of all those who remain in rebellion to him. You know, sometimes to use the language of another parable, it is impossible for human beings to tell the difference between the wheat and the tares, as Jesus said. And the tares are allowed to stay in the fields with the wheat until the final harvesting until the final judgment. Sometimes, now to use the language that John did, use his picture, the chaff may appear very wheat-like. And it's hard to tell the difference between the two. Some are going to stay and some are going to serve in the church for a lifetime. But in the end, they will be, there will be a sifting. And there will be an exposure. And there will be a separation. And those who appeared like wheat throughout their lifetime are going to stand before the Lord, their judge, and they're going to give an account. And Jesus says, many. Many will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do many wonders in your name? They'll be begging for their lives. And he will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. It's Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Jesus is going to separate the poor in spirit from the self-righteous and the self-serving and those who are full of themselves. He's going to separate the true disciples from those who are just pretending. He will separate those who cried out to him in genuine faith and repentance from all those whose sinners' prayers were just trite and empty words. He's going to separate the repentant from the unrepentant. And he is going to show who is who and he's going to show what is what on that great day of reckoning. Jesus is your judge. And Jesus is my judge. Is he also your savior? That question is being pressed upon us in this particular passage. 
When I tell you, I'm telling you now, turn to God and put faith in Jesus for salvation. That's not a thing that's just one and done in our lives. And I try to stress this to you, and I hope that you get it. You don't just turn once, and then you're done turning. I'm not saying you're saved over and over again. What I am saying is that the Christian life is a turning life. The Christian life is a coming life. You don't just come once and it's one and done and you're good to go. It is a coming life. Are you, have you turned to God in repentance? Have you turned to Jesus in faith? And are you always turning? Have you repented? And are you repentant? Have you come and are you coming to the Lord Jesus Christ in true faith? You won't find salvation anywhere else. It's in no one but Jesus. It says, so we're asking, who is Jesus? We want to be certain of his worth. Who is Jesus? Look at verses 21 and 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, little quick insertion here. Of all the times I've read this passage, I had never really noticed those particular words. This baptism is actually in all four of the Gospels, which is kind of unusual. And and Luke is the only one to mention that this happens while he was praying. But I, I had never really noticed it before. When Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The Savior of the world has come, and God gives this witness, this testimony of his son because he wants you and me to know it, that the Savior of the world has come, and he has come for us, and he is baptized. The Bible, well, let me say, Jesus is baptized to fulfill all that God required for righteousness. He's not getting baptized. Remember, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was a sign of a repentant heart. Who is repentant? The sinner. So we have to be clear that Jesus is not getting baptized because he is a sinner. He is getting baptized because we are sinners. And so in fulfilling all righteousness... He is doing that on our behalf. And John, it says in the book of Matthew, actually protests when Jesus comes to him to be baptized. And he says to him, you should baptize me. I shouldn't be baptizing you. And Jesus says, it is necessary in order to fulfill all righteousness. So Jesus obeys the command of the Father on behalf of sinners. He is baptized to fulfill all righteousness. I want you to see him in your mind's eye. Let's slow down the narrative a little bit. Look at Jesus standing there on the bank of the Jordan River, stepping down into the waters. See him there laid back, immersed, the waters rushing over his head. See him emerge from the water and step back up the bank, his lips moving in silent prayer, 
his eyes lifted to the heavens as he seeks the Father's face. Here Jesus stands on the verge of his public ministry in which he will accomplish the salvation of the people of God. And he's starting this ministry as he will conclude it in communion with his Father, praying by the Spirit. And as Jesus looks to the Father praying, it says that the heavens opened. Now we may imagine, because we're looking in our mind's eye, right? We may imagine that the clouds part and light breaks through. It's possible, and I even think, this is just me, I think that it's probable. But that's really not what the Bible means when it says the heavens opened. When it says the heavens, it's not talking about the sky. It's talking about the heaven above the heavens. It's talking about the third heaven, as Paul called it. It's talking about the unseen realm, the dwelling place of God. The unseen realm, the dwelling place of God was opened to earth. Now, if the other, um, if the pattern of other heavenly revelations hold here, then those who believe in this moment, those who, who line the banks of the Jordan River, who are believers, then we, I think that they see the Spirit come down in the form of the dove and hear the words. They actually can discern the words of the Father's voice. And those who do not, who are not the true believers, they know that something has happened. They, they may see with their, the physical sight, they may see clouds part and light come down. They may see something come down upon Jesus and they may hear a voice but not understand the words. And the reason that I'm saying that is because when, when Paul was on the road to Damascus and the heavens opened, he was engulfed in that light and Jesus spoke to him from heaven. It says that the others who were traveling companions with him were able to hear a voice, but they couldn't understand the words like Paul understood the words. And this happened at other times as well. And so if the pattern holds from those other examples, then I think that would be what's happening here. That there will be lots of people there who see something, but what it is, they just guess. Maybe, here's another example, comes from John chapter 12. Remember when God the Father spoke over His Son from heaven? Just before, just after Jesus had entered into Jerusalem, and the voice, people said, sounded like thunder. Or others said it was an angel that spoke to him. But the believers heard. The believers understood what was spoken. I believe that the same thing would have been happening here. And you know what? It's like that all the time. It's like that every single Sunday. Because there are wheat and there are tares. There is the wheat and there is the chaff. There are the true believers and then there are those who are merely religious or like these people, the merely curious. People gather in the church all the time who may just, from time to time, they're impressed. They might even, they might receive the word even with joy in their hearts, that initial welcome of the word, but that seed which falls on their hearts doesn't take true root to bear actual fruit for Jesus. That's the parable of Matthew 13. But these people often, well, these people never truly hear the Father. And they never discern truly what is spiritually discerned. 
but the Spirit reveals to the heart of a man. And that's obviously very dangerous, and it's deceptive. It's deceptive. Because when anyone receives the Word of God with joy, they will believe that it is a true spiritual reception, but not necessarily so. We must all pray that God would give to us His Holy Spirit, that we would discern with that spiritual discernment and perception the deep things of God and the glory of God in the face of His Son. We must pray that the light of the glory of Christ would fall upon even us. I'm telling you, the Bible tells us many people are deceived. Do not be deceived. No, it says in Hebrews, do not let your heart be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So here is Jesus. He is obedient. He is fulfilling all righteousness. He is looking to His Father. He is seeking His face. He is drawing near in prayer. And at this very moment, the Father speaks from heaven. And this is, this is precious. He is delighted with His Son. He is overflowing with joy over His Son. He beams. You know, like parents beam with pride over their children. That's what's happening here. The Father is beaming over His Son, and the Son is basking in the love and in the delight of His Father. The Spirit descends on Christ in that bodily form like a dove, and the Father says to Him again, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. He is saying to Him, You are all my pleasure. You are ever You are eternally mine. He is saying, I am invisible. You are my image. None has ever seen me, but they may see the glory of God in your face. You are the exact imprint of my nature. You are the brightness and the radiance of my glory. Son, I love you with all of my heart. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And in these words, God in heaven is calling to all the believers, not only lining the banks of the Jordan River, but lining the river of history. God is calling all of his to his son. And he is saying, this is the one. This is the long-promised, long-awaited Christ. Come to Him. Hear Him. Believe in Him. Come to my Son and you will be saved. As Jesus prays and He emerges from the waters of baptism, the Spirit descends on Him. And on Him, the Spirit remains. Now I want you to go back, again in your mind's eye, to many, many, many years before this, millennia even. Okay, You are looking out over waters, over a vast sea. You are looking to the horizon. And there's nothing of particular notice until 
Something seems to appear on the horizon. It's just a blur at first. And then slowly but surely, it takes the outline of a ship. It's an ark. And it comes closer and closer until where you're standing, that ship shakes and shudders and grinds to a halt on the shelf of a mountainside. In this ship are eight persons who have been brought safely through the water. This is the story of Genesis chapter 8. You know when this is, it's the flood, the worldwide deluge. All the ungodly have been consumed. And through this ark, the human race has been saved. You wait there and you look. No activity for quite a while. And then 40 days after this ark has ground to a halt on the mountainside, the one window opens and the face of an elderly man appears. Then he brings up his hands. Inside, he holds a raven. He lets it go out the window and flies off. You watch. Flies around a little bit and then just disappears. And it doesn't come back. So the elderly man reaches down again and he brings up a dove in his hands and he lets her go to the skies. You watch as she flies around and around looking for a place to land, but she doesn't find a place to set her foot. And so she comes back into the ark. The elderly man takes her in again. He closes the window and you wait. Another week, the window opens. There's the elderly man. He brings up the dove, and once again, he lets her go. This time, as you watch, she actually disappears from view. You think, maybe she's gone for good. But come evening time, she returns with a freshly plucked olive leaf. Why has she come back? On both times that she's let go, why does she come back? It's pretty simple. Because there is no salvation outside the ark. There is no life sustained for her outside the ark. So both times she returns. The elderly man goes back into the ark with the dove. He closes the window. You wait another week. Lots of waiting here. And then he reappears after that week. Opens the window again. Brings up his hands and he lets that dove go. Again, she disappears from view. You wait, and you wait. But Noah and you never see the dove again. She doesn't come back. Why? Because there is salvation outside of the ark. There is life sustained outside of the ark. So she doesn't come back. In Genesis chapter 9, God speaks to the eight persons who finally emerge from that ship. And he promises them, he promises the human race that he will never destroy the world again with a flood. I don't want to be irreverent, but it's almost like, so what? Because... You are going to destroy the earth in a sense, right? 
It's not going to be with a worldwide flood, but you are going to destroy the world with fire. And I just think that's a particular worse judgment. I, I would take the floodwaters over the fire. I don't know about you, but that's what I would prefer. So what's the point of this promise? Why this promise? I think here's the reason for this promise. One, it's a sign of the faithfulness of God. We have the, the bow that appears you know, from time to time in the sky to remind us of the faithfulness of God. But there's something more than that. I believe that the Lord was saying, there is coming another judgment. And there is no more salvation in the ark. Don't go back to the ark. You must find your salvation somewhere else. As there is a worse judgment to come, so there is a different salvation and a better salvation to come. You better find that salvation. Every individual soul must find that salvation. Now, let's jump aboard a time machine and travel back down through history. Back down millennia. And here we stand on the banks of the Jordan River. We are just one of many that line this river. And you watch as this one solitary figure comes out from the crowd. He steps down into the waters. He's submerged. He comes back out again. He climbs back up the bank. You can see his lips moving in silent prayer. His eyes are raised up to heaven. And then something happens. The clouds break. Light pours through. And something, you see, can you make it out? Looks like a dove comes down, fluttering slowly, gently, and lands upon him. In the book of John, chapter 3, I want you to hear the witness of the prophet John. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Hear that? It remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And John says, And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Why did the dove leave the ark and not return? Because there was salvation outside of the ark. It did not remain on the ark. Nobody, nothing stayed on the ark because there was salvation. And there was life outside of the ark. And now, several thousand years later, we see the Spirit in the form of a dove come down. And it's very clear. It's on the one on whom the Spirit remains. In the form of the dove. The Spirit remains. I think this is a sign to us. There is no salvation outside of Him. There's no life and there's no salvation outside of Him. So come to Him and believe in Him and take your refuge 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. You, like John, could not know him on your own, but God may make Jesus known to you. Do you know him? Do you see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shining from this face? Do you believe in him? The spirit, the dove, remains on him. It is the eternal testimony of God. No salvation and no life outside of Christ. But in him is everything that you need. Come to him. Take your refuge in him. And let us, as a church, call others to him also. Let's pray. Father, you have shown us where our salvation lies. You have borne witness that salvation is in Jesus. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one, the Messiah and the Savior of the world. We must come to him. Lord, I pray that you would plant your truth in every single heart, that there would be no resistance, whatever walls of doubt, whatever walls of resistance, pride, whatever that we have up against Jesus, I pray that the force of your Holy Spirit's power would demolish those walls and plant your word in truth in our hearts. In every heart, Father, this is your work. And for its accomplishment, you have all the glory and all the honor. Would you do it in every single one of us? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.